what I want to speak about this afternoon is, uh, do you have confidence in the flesh or in the spirit? Which one? Notice this text here in Philippians 3 and verse number 3. Philippians 3 and verse number 3. Philippians 3, verse number 3. And uh, you, will recall, you will recall that one of the primary problems that Paul had dealing in the New Testament was with these Jews and these Judaizers who uh, never could really accept Christ in heaven to this day. But here's what he says in Philippians 3, verse number 3. We are of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. In other words, the Jewish community was involved in all of this physical circumcision and all these do's and don'ts of the laws. We are of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Now, when we look at ourselves and our own, own uh, spiritual lives, I think this is one of the most important principles to keep in mind because, as you've heard several times this morning, you cannot live a godly life on your own. And I'll recall people in times past that I knew in other churches, and some of the most miserable people I knew were people who were trying to live a godly life, and they did not have the Holy Spirit. And they, it was just constant frustration to them. Now, in Psalm 118 and verse number 8, we read this. Psalm 118 and verse number 8. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Now let me carry that one step further. Are you a man? And I'm speaking broadly because we're referring to both men and women here. Now, if it says here, it's better to put trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Does that mean to put confidence in yourself? Now, it's true. We have to have some self-confidence. Otherwise, we wouldn't do anything. But by, by, this, by the same token, when it comes to the matter of overcoming and making it in the kingdom of God, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. I'm amazed how many people will pick a certain champion and they, they rely on and everything he says or everything he does they just believe that's the absolute truth. And then if he, if he falters and makes some kind of mistake, then they lose all confidence and they just like, like to throw the towel in. I've seen people do that. I'll tell you where your confidence ought to be. It ought to be up above in God and in Christ. All men, regardless of who they are, are subject to mistakes and errors and faults. That's, that includes the ministry as well. But you better keep your eyes on God because that's, what, that's really going to count in the end. Psalm 127 and verse number 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, what, is, what are we called in the New Testament? We're called the temple of God's Spirit, aren't we? And Moses refers to that spiritual house. And uh, so what we're reading here is, that unless God is really the one doing the work in you through the Holy Spirit, it's going to be vain. So as we've heard repeatedly on this particular day, 
this day of Pentecost was when the Holy Spirit was first given in, in a broad sense, and it fell on those people there who were gathered at that meeting. And then from that time on, to all those who follow the instruction about being baptized and then having hands laid on them. Isaiah 57, verse 12. Isaiah 57, 12. Here we read here, I will declare your righteousness, and that is, if it comes from God, and your works, that is, if you have your own self-righteousness and it's not from God. So, here's what God is saying about them. I'll declare your righteousness, all right, and your works, all right, for they will not profit you. They will not profit you. So, there has to be, as we've heard repeatedly, a, a change that really takes place, and that change is gradual, and it occurs over a period of a lifetime. It isn't something that just immediately takes place, and then all of a sudden, like one fellow told me years ago, a young man, and he was sitting next to me in one of the feasts, and he said, well, he said, I, I think I've overcome everything that needs to be overcome. Well, I was polite. I didn't laugh in his face, because the truth of the matter is, and knowing I'm not going to mention any names, he's had all kinds of problems since then. So here we see in Second Corinthians 5, and verse number 1, this is what I said a moment ago. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed or dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So unless the, God builds a house, then it's, it, it, it's absolutely going to be in vain. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 20, we read this statement. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what was the righteousness of the Religious leaders, their own self-works. So he's saying you have to go beyond that. And the only way one can go beyond that is is recognizing there is no real confidence in the flesh. Anything that the flesh attempts to do, you cannot have confidence in it. Now, that leads to the next question. What confidence can you have in the spirit? What is confidence in the spirit, then, as opposed to confidence in the flesh? John 4. Verse number 23. John 4, verse number 23. The hour is coming. Now here's what we're talking about. And now is. So that actually began at the time of Christ and will continue right on down to his return. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, there has to be a spiritual relationship, and that spiritual relationship then will allow you the right kind of true worship. And if it, isn't that, if it, if it doesn't fall in that category, it's going to end up being empty. Here we read in Romans 7, 
Romans 7 and verse number 6. Romans 7 and verse number 6. And this is where one of the big problems arises because as I pointed out in the sermon some times ago, Paul talks of three different laws and is always getting these mixed up and they always assume that any time it's talking about the law, it means the Ten Commandments. It doesn't mean any such thing in most cases. Well, what it actually refers to is the law of sin and death or it can refer to the physical law, all right, or it can refer to the Ten Commandments. But here it says here, we have been delivered from the law. Now, what's that mean? The law of sin and death. We're all under the law of sin and death, and unless that uh, that uh, penalty is removed by accepting Christ's sacrifice and repenting and turning to God, then it says here, we are now been delivered. How are we delivered? By means of baptism, repentance, and receiving the Holy Spirit. We have now been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. So, we should serve in newness of life, newness of the Spirit. Here we can have the confidence in the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. There's the physical do's and don'ts and this type of thing that so many people were involved in. Romans 8, verse number 15. For you did not receive the spiritual spirit of bondage again to fear. And we heard that discussed today about serving God in fear. You've not received that. But you have received, as we heard this morning, the spirit of adoption or sonship, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That was well covered in the in the sermonette. Now where did it all begin? In the Old Testament period, the prophets and the servants of God were led by the Spirit. But it nowhere says in the Old Testament that I recall that the Spirit dwelled in them as an earnest of the Spirit. Because the word earnest simply means if you ever bought a piece of property in a real estate deal, you have to put down earnest money. And that means you're sincere. You intend to go through with the bargain. So this earnest is, is the down payment is what it's talking about that we receive from God. And this is what we have to, to build upon along with the Spirit of Christ that inspires and helps us. So as we see here in, in um, Acts, the first chapter, and that was covered this morning, I just want to touch two chapters. Two, two texts here in Acts, the first chapter. And uh, we'll notice what it says here. We heard about it this morning on several occasions. So Acts chapter 1 and verse number, verse number 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's the promise. And that promise, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And then, as we read here in verse number 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then it goes on to describe, you'll be witnesses and so on and so forth. So as you heard this morning, we went from Peter the timid to Peter the bold. And uh, then in Acts 2, of course, here's the day of Pentecost uh, mentioned in, in then you can go down through the account. I think we've done that a number of times. But as we read here in verse uh, 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Every single example you find in the New Testament where they spoke in what is called tongues or different languages is when there were mixed peoples there who spoke different languages. They never, you never find it manifested when they all spoke the same thing. What would be the purpose? If everybody spoke the same thing, then all of a sudden here comes this language thing and, and confuses everyone. That's been misunderstood largely in the tongues uh, chapter there that discusses that very thing because there were mixed people there of different nationalities and different languages. Now, we see the promise was fulfilled. Uh, certainly a type of it here in Luke 24. Notice Luke 24 and verse number 49. Luke 24, verse number 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, and here's what he told them, just as we read back in Acts there, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are, are endured with power from on high. And then that's exactly what happened. Now, as we saw in John the 14th chapter, the 15th chapter, and the 16th chapter, I'm not going to go back and quote those because we've seen that earlier today now. But the promise was made to them called the Comforter or the Helper, and that's what they received. And remember what Jesus said, if I do not go to, to heaven or to ascend, I, you, will, you will not receive this help. Jesus was with them personally, and they were very inspired and moved by what he did, but they still did not have the, the capability within themselves to live it. How many times do you read they got into a squabble among themselves as to who's the most important? It's amazing how many people, and that's what they think of, you know, the status and this kind of thing. And then he had to tell them, you know, that's the way the Gentiles act, lording it over one another. But he said, your brothers together, you're not to act that way. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't authority, and there has, there's, there's a decision-making process. There has to be, because somebody has to be responsible. But, uh, you know, it's like you, you have different kind of people that want to be responsible. You have people that just automatically have the capability to take the leadership and do it. And then you have people who want to do it, and so they get involved in, in, uh, in giving orders here and there. And then you have some that don't want to do it at all, and they're pushed into it even though they didn't want it. But you see what the apostle Jesus is showing but under the inspiration of the Spirit, they would be given that capability. Now I'm going to cover just five points here, and that is, what does the, uh, this promise, what does the Holy Spirit accomplish in our lives? I'm going to give you five generalities here, which uh, certainly should apply, and I, and I think certainly could apply to us all. You know, if you walk down the street and you met every guy that met you and said, well, he'd look at you and think, boy, this man is really special. I can see that he's got the Spirit of God, and he is a saint, and I can just see it in the way he looks. You ever had that happen to you? Closest thing I ever had happen to me was that when I was in that nursing home with that broken leg, I got ready to leave that, leaving that. One of those nurses used to come in, sit down and talk to me, like probably once a day. She'd sit there and chat with me for quite a while, and she'd leave. And when we got ready to, to leave, I was determined to get out of that place. I wasn't going to spend another night there. She stuck her head around the corner, and she said, I want to tell you something. She said, you are really unusual. You are a real exception to the people that are coming to this place. Well, being myself is all. All I was being, but she saw the difference. I, I never noticed it. 
But uh, that's that's the way you all should be. When people are around you, they should recognize the difference. And, uh, you know, you get around a, a, a group of men, they're using all kinds of profanity, and you don't use profanity and act the way they do. You think they don't notice it? When I was bear hunting one time in Canada, there were two guys there from from um, right outside of Washington, D.C. And, um, oh, they just cursed back and forth. And every time they talked, they said something. They had profanity. And when they looked at me, both of them talked to me. Not a one of them ever used profanity because they saw that I didn't use it. And so, but they sure used it among themselves. But that's the way a lot of people are. But you should be different, and people should recognize it without any... Uh, attempt to show it and manifest it and uh, demonstrate somehow that you're you're a righteous person. You don't have to do that. If you live a godly life, it'll come out on you just automatically. Now, 1 John 3. First of all, the Holy Spirit delivers us or gives us the capability to delivering us from the power of sin. The power of sin. Does sin, does sin have power over you? Well, one or two things that are going to regulate your life. The power of the Holy Spirit that inspires you or the power of the devil in human nature that dominates you. Either one or the other. So here's what we read in 1 John 3, verse number 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. And it's the present tense, meaning is not practicing sin or is not sinning. And you know what sin is, it's a transgression of the law. Whoever sins, that is, who's practicing sin, has neither seen him nor known him. But we're talking about lifestyles that people practice. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he, that is, Christ, is righteous. But he who sins is of the devil. For the devil sins, that's the, the proper Greek form, sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that's exactly what's taking place. And you heard the text read this morning that one of the things that Christ accomplished by his sacrifice and his overcoming and being faithful at the end, he said, the prince of this world is judged. In other words, it's already taking place. It's just a matter of him being removed when Christ returns. It's like when a man is sentenced in, in, a, in a court. Um, that is, they, they find him guilty. The jury finds him guilty. Now, nine out of ten times, they don't sentence him that very day. He goes away for two or three weeks, and then they'll bring him back, and then that's when the sentence is passed. But it's already been determined he's guilty and he's going to have, a, have to suffer the penalty. That's a, a condition that the devil is in right now. Whosoever has been begotten, the word born, begotten, of God does not practice sin. For his seed, that is the spirit, remains in him and he cannot or he does not perform, he is not performing sin. Doesn't mean he cannot sin. We know that very well. Because he has been begotten of God. That, that Holy Spirit in there has, has a profound influence. And in 1 John 5, verse number 18, we know that whoever is begotten of God does not practice sin. But he who has been 
begotten of God keeps himself, that is, keeps, keeps himself in control, and the wicked one does not touch him, doesn't, doesn't manifest the power over him. So those are, that's one of the most important things to keep in mind. The Holy Spirit, by, by receiving that begotten from, begettal from the Father, and the earnest of the Spirit gives us the capability to master the power of sin over our lives. Now next, it gives us a purpose of life. How many of you, before you knew the truth, had any purpose in life outside of something physical? You were going to work on your job and then final retirement and you retire and then, tie, and then uh, die of old age. That's about the scope of what most of us thought about. Or many of us never even thought about it at all. We were too busy involved in what we were doing at the time, so we never gave any thought to the future. But when you received the Holy Spirit and you were given a knowledge of the truth, what did that do to you? It changed the whole purpose in life. And it made you realize you were here for something far profound than just a physical human being that was going to live a certain, certain number of years and then die of old age. You didn't die of an accident first. So you see, that's, an, that's another thing I want to point out. Now let's go to Philippians, the third chapter here. And notice this statement here. Philippians 3 and verse number 13. Brethren, I do not count my, my, myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do. So here's the goal and the, and the purpose in life. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was the goal. And that's the, only a real, that's the only a real goal in life that's worth seeking. Now, I don't mean to put down physical goals. We have to have uh, intermediate goals in life, whatever we may be doing. I remember one time in California, a woman wanted to talk to me, and I went out to see her, and she said, she said my life is just dull and boring. I don't have any purpose in life. And uh, she'd been coming to church for a long time. And that's, that's as far as she had progressed. And I told her, I said, now, do you have any intermediate goals that are taking up your time that you can work toward the main goal in the end? Well, she said she didn't have any. I said, that's the problem. You don't have, you know, you don't have any purpose and goal in, in accomplishing what you're doing physically because you haven't even allowed yourself to see what is available spiritually. And, of course, I, I think I helped her because she, she decided she was going to have a different perspective after that. But it does show you very plainly here that the purpose in life, there's one purpose in life, and that's what the Holy Spirit allows you to see. How many of you understood that before then? How many of you understood that before you ever learned anything about the truth? Here we read in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Here we read, we are to receive what? The end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the, that's the, uh, the um, summation of it. And then uh, we have to go, we read through these trials that we suffer through in this life. That the genuineness or the trustworthiness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be found it is tested with fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then as I read in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith. What's the end of it? In other words, what's the consequences of it? The salvation of your souls, of your lives. Now that's the second, second thing I want to emphasize. And then the third one is this. The Holy Spirit enables you to have continual hope. You don't get discouraged. You don't want to just throw the towel in and quit. And um, I, I used to hear that expression all the time. He threw the towel in. Well, as I was at one time heavily involved in boxing, and I actually saw the, the coach all of a sudden threw the towel on on the floor because that was to stop the fight right now because the fellow was about ready to be knocked out or something. So he threw the towel in, and that ends the fight. Now here you see, you see here that if we have continual hope, then we don't get to the place where we just want to want to give up and quit, and and people will, will tend to get in that tendency. Philippians one verse number six. Philippians one verse number six. Being confident of this very thing. So here's the confidence and the hope. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He'll complete it. You don't have to be discouraged or want to give up and quit. And Philippians 2, verse number 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Can you have any confidence in the flesh? You better not. You better have it in the spirit. But you have your responsibility to carry out the um, the obligations that have been placed on us in and working to overcome. Philippians three verse number sixteen. We read here, this whole family in heaven and earth is named. That is, as we read here in verse fourteen, the Father. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through, the, the, through his Spirit in the inner man. So that's what's, that's what's taking place. You can have this continual hope. You're praying and studying regularly. When you're praying, you're talking to God. And when you're reading the Scripture, God's talking to you. And that's the conversation. That's the way it works. Now, we've heard about the new man. The next point is, it enables us, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to put on the new man, not the old man. The old man is plenty bad, but the new man is entirely different. Now let's notice what we read here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. I think the worst insult you could ever receive if you saw your friends that you knew years and years ago and they patted you on the back and they'd say, Oh, Sam, you're the same old man you used to be. Well, if they can't see something different in you, you know, my dad was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. He was from the South. And if you know anything about history... The, the Civil War was generated and caused by the Republicans in the North against the Democrats in the South. That was just one aspect of it, but that's, that's politically what took place. And so he was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. I don't think he'd be today because 
if you see which direction the Democrat Party has taken, it's enough to make you sick. They have just completely changed, and they've become extremely liberal, and, and it's just pathetic what they, what they um, advocate. Abortion, uh, homosexuality, and you name it. It's just endless. But anyway, I saw a friend years later, and uh, he said, boy, he said, you've really changed. You're, well, you're no longer a Democrat. You're a Republican. Well, I wasn't either for that matter, but uh, at least he could see that there had been some a whole change in my thinking with regard to, to, uh, to, to the, the general uh, context of the country. And then in uh, Colossians 2, verse number 6, Colossians 2, verse number 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. Not in the old man. And not in some champion in this world that you would like to copy or you'd like to be like, but like Christ. In Colossians 3, Verse number 10, Colossians 3, verse number 10. And you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him, that is, of Christ, who created him, that is, the new man. The new man is being created in anyone who really has the Holy Spirit and is mastering the pulls of the human nature and all of his carnality and is overcoming. So that's that's a that's a whole new person and a whole new way of thinking. Second Corinthians four verse number sixteen. Therefore, we do not lose heart. As I said a few moments ago, this is encouraging us to keep on. But here's what we read here. We're talking about the new man. Even though our outward man is perishing, and we only live so long, and uh, I remember years ago, some of these movie stars, and uh, I, this goes back. I go back to the 30s, and, and watch even even used, even go back so far as to, to see movies when I was a boy that were were didn't even have any language. They just they were all just acting, and they had all the, the notations underneath, and then they 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 finally came out with with speaking movies, and a lot of people don't realize this, but some of those great stars of those old silent films were absolute failures. They didn't have the voices or anything, and they were just washed out because they didn't have the ability to use their voices properly. And then so as a result of that, then, you would see these movie stars, and I can remember their names. A lot of you older folks here, you can remember very well some of their names. And then... Sometime 50 or years later or so, you'd see a picture of them and you couldn't believe what had happened to them. Just wilted down and just just looked like nothing but scarecrows and just just a bunch of hanging flesh. And that's that what happens. That's what happens to every human being, doesn't it? Sooner or later. Some people show it sooner and some show it later. But sooner or later, this this outward body is perishing, isn't it? And it's going to die. But what's happening here inside? Yet the inward man is being renewed. Day by day. That's the man that counts. That's the new man. And that's a man that is led by the Spirit of God. 1 John 3, verses 1 and one through 3. 
1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Notice the next part. Therefore the world does not know us. It doesn't know you. Because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Those are the sons of God. Notice the next verse. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, that entails that entails sitting down and evaluating the self and seeing, being honest with the self and seeing what the faults and shortcomings are and what the mistakes are and how to correct those. That's what it entails because that is, enables us to put on the new man. Now the last point. As a result, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to overcome human nature. One of the biggest flaws in the whole thinking of the world today is an absolute ignorance of human nature. And that was caused by Freud and a few other of these well-known psychologists who decided the whole problem with human, human behavior is in the mind, and you have the, what is it, the id and the ego and whatever other aspect of, of the human mind, and, and if those can be manipulated properly, we can have human beings behaving properly. They have no knowledge whatsoever of the pulls of human nature and that God made us that way. And all you have to do is read, read what Christ said in, in, um, in Mark and in Matthew and what Paul said in Galatians describes very plainly what human nature is. And it's a mess. So it gives us the capability of overcoming human nature. But you know you have to start out by recognizing it. Recognizing it in general sense and recognizing it in yourself. And don't think we don't have it in ourselves, because we do. First John 5, verses 4 and 5. Whosoever is begotten of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He, who is he who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you know what you're going to do? You're going to believe what he teaches. You're going to believe what he says. And you're going to realize the necessity to make the changes so that the influences of the world do not dominate your thinking. I'll tell you what the influences of the world do to me and make me matter in a wet hen. I hear things and I, I read news and I see all the terrible things going on and I'm just disgusted with everything. And that's the world. That's what the world has to offer. Now, if I never knew the truth, I wouldn't think that way. I'd be involved in cheering for this one and cheering for that one and, and uh, contributing here and contributing there and, uh, and quote, doing my part to make the world a better place. It isn't going to happen. We have a large group of ministers in the world today that think there's going to be a great revival and a great resurgence of Christianity and everything is going to pull back to the way it used to be. 
Well, they better hold their breaths. Don't hold your breath because it isn't going to happen. Not if, not if you believe what the Bible says. Because it's going to wax worse and worse. And that's what's taking place. First John 2, verses 13 and 14. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. That is, the older members in the, ch- in the church, see. And I write to you, young men, because they're the ones that are making progress right along now, because you have overcome the wicked one. And I write to you, little children, because you've known the Father, and I have written to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning, and I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. You have to overcome the pulls of this world. You have to overcome the pulls of the flesh, and you have to overcome the influence of Satan. But you will not do it without the power of God's Spirit. First John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Overcome what? Verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ comes, in other words, it uses the word has come, it's a perfect participle, which is probably accurate enough, in the flesh is not of God. Here's what the problem was. The problem at that time, there was a whole religious movement that was preaching that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. He was a phantom, and um, he really didn't die. And that was the teaching at that time. And so he's saying, John, is, is this polemic that he's addressing this issue is right here. Anybody that, said, that confessed that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is, he did, does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's all kinds of manifests because he said there's a lot of, already a lot of Antichrists in the world. And then as we read in verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. These influences and these evil things. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Absolutely. So that's what the Holy Spirit gives you the capability of overcoming all of these things. Satan and the world and your own human nature. And then in Revelation 3, verse number 21. Revelation 3, verse number 21. To him who overcomes, or as a better translation here from the Greek form, to him overcoming. He's in the process of overcoming. I do not believe for one second that at the time Christ returns, there's going to be any human being who has fully overcome. Now he's perfected and ready for the kingdom of God. But he is over, he's in that process because it's a lifelong process. He who over, he who is overcoming, I will grant with, with me to sit on my throne. As I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. So it is a matter of overcoming. So overcoming the pulls of human nature. Delivering us from the power of Satan. Giving us a purpose in life. Giving us continual hope. Enables us to put on the new man and to overcome the pulls of human nature. Without the Holy Spirit, we'd be helpless. And that's the real significance of this day of Pentecost, to remind us of it every year and to renew our determination and drive 
to accomplish that goal.